Hey guys, I'm Ashley Graham, and this is Pretty Big Deal. All right, as always, this episode is sponsored by my go-to for all things makeup, Revlon. Every episode, I'm gonna be having in-depth and personal conversations with some of my favorite people on how they walk the walk of self-talk. We'll find out about their pretty big deal moment. Absolutely nothing is off limits, so get ready. Our guest today is a freedom fighter, an artist, an educator, a mother, and the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. You may have seen her on both Time 100's Most Influential People and Time 100's Women of the Year for 2020. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, When They Call You a Terrorist, the Black Lives Matter memoir. And she is definitely a pretty big deal. Patrice Colors. You look absolutely beautiful. Thank you. And you're glowing. And it's amazing that you still have this like radiant smile because you have a lot going on. <laughs> Very much so. You have a lot. But my mom is a, she smiles all the time. So oh. I just feel like I got that from her. Yeah. She's I like, love that. always has a big smile. And I'm always like, mom, how are you? And she's like, I'm great. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, great. I'm so glad you're great, mama. <laughs> So I have so many questions for you about your past, your present, your future, and I and I want to get into all of it. But first, you know, we hear about the Black Lives Matter movement. We hear your name, but I think that it's important for listeners to learn about you and your evolution. Other people have a lot of ideas about who you are and what you represent. So I would love it if you could just tell us in your own words, who is Patrice Colors? Thanks. Well, I just want to first, before I even go into me, I want to say that I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, you're so sweet. I'm very grateful for just like who you are in the world and how you show up. And when my team was like, hey, would you do something with Ashley Graham? I was like, duh! (laughs) Please! Um, So this is a huge honor for me. And I'm, I'm so very grateful. That's so nice of you. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm so grateful that you're here. I really see myself first and foremost as a daughter, a daughter of Sharice mm. Simpson, my mother, and she's one of the first persons who taught me how to be who I am, mm. be generous and kind and loving. She really taught me what it means to forgive people and mm. to showing up even when it's hard and difficult. She's the per- first person who taught me discipline. Um, my mother raised four children with very little support, and very little help. And she just did what she had to do for us. And when I had my child, I remember, I mean, cause I was also postpartum. So I was like crying my eyeballs out, but like, oh, did you have I- postpartum depression? I did. I did. it really, And I was, I was kind of gearing up for it, but I definitely like in the, the tenderness post, post having the baby, I just remember being like, how did my mom do this with four kids with like no support? Like, I just was like, she's a freaking goddess. I ask myself that question about my mother all the time, all the time. And I only have one. And it's like, she did it with three. Mm -mm. No, thank you. Exactly. Exactly. So I I feel like I'm a daughter and being a daughter 
really encompasses so many things because I just learned so much from that woman. Like Mm. she's just a force. And, you know, when I had my baby, she was like, she stayed with me in the hospital because I had to have emergency C-section and she just like commits, like she commits. And so I feel like I am blessed to have, have like a percentage of her traits and I'm lucky for it. Wow. That's amazing that you identify as a daughter before even a mother. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, I feel like her, I feel like my baby is also her child. Like we're just like her children still. <laughs> I have to be like, mom, this is my kid. <laughs> <laughs> were you a young mom? No, I just had my baby three years ago. Oh my gosh, your baby's Four years there? ago. Oh. Yeah. Shine's four years old now. What's the name? Shine. Shine. That's so beautiful. Playdates. I'm always looking for a fun playdate. Please. It it matters having playdates. Like when when, when we first went into quarantine, I was like, oh God, who's he going to play with? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I've kind of been like pulling my hair out. Like I wish we had friends that were also quarantining with us because then it would just make my life a lot easier. But here we are. I'm glad that, you know, we can release that energy out to each other. (laughs) So now that you've explained who Patrice is so eloquently and so beautifully and so deeply, can you also tell us what Black Lives Matter is? And first of all, sorry, like before you go there, I have to say three women, three amazing women created Black Lives Matter. I mean, of course it took women to have to do this. And here you are. You are the ones that, (laughs) of course, started this movement. So tell us exactly what is Black Lives Matter. Thank you. And I, I love when people ask that question because Black Lives Matter honestly has been so many things. Mm. We started off as a hashtag and really seeing it as like something that we can use on social media to like galvanize young people and galvanize our allies to come together to appreciate Blackness, Mm -hmm. to lift up Blackness. You know, sometimes I think people think that Black Lives Matter is about Black death because we're often, you know, going to protest and lifting up the death of Black folks at the hands of the police. But Mm. I actually want to say that it's not about Black death. Black Lives Matter is about Black life. Mm. And it's about valuing Black human beings. It's about valuing our lives, valuing how we show up in the world, and really committing to our dignity. And so this has, you know, been such an important, important moment for me and Black Lives Matter. Um, It's been so healing to be a part of this movement and to be present for, I think, you know, people deciding that they weren't going to allow for their lives to be taken for granted. And in so many words, I believe that BLM is a rehumanizing project. It's rehumanizing the people who've been devalued for hundreds of years. Mm I mean, it's a phenomenon and it's taken over the world. I mean, that's not a uh, a small success story there. So congratulations. But I am curious, what are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to Black Lives Matter? Oh my goodness, so many. So- <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know you could break it down for us. Yeah, you know, and it's important for people to understand this and, and for your audience in particular. 
you know, when a movement or group of people or an individual is at the center of a misinformation and disinformation campaign, then something more is happening. Mm. And so I say that because Black Lives Matter from the very beginning has been at the center of a misinformation and disinformation campaign. So many things that are on the internet are just simply not true about BLM. Number one, George Soros has never funded us, literally. Okay, Um, you heard it here. (laughs) And that was one of the first, you know, sort of moments of disinformation that I experienced. I just remember being like, you know, the internet swirling with George Soros is behind BLM. And I was like, really? And that to me is intense because what that's saying is that people don't believe that Black women can be powerful, Mm. that people wanted to discredit what we have done and really wanted to say there's a white man behind what's happening inside of BLM. And it's just not true. It's Mm. us. It's us. The other misinformation campaign has been that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. (laughs) And I chuckle because it's so ridiculous and so the furthest thing from the truth that, you know, some things are just, they're absurd. And so Black Lives Matter is not a terrorist organization. In fact, during during the Obama administration, he rejected a petition that was trying to make the White House label us as a terrorist organization. So there's that. And, you know, I think the last thing about our work is BLM is a civil rights organization. We always have been and we always will be. And we have been at the forefront of challenging how Black people in particular have been seen inside of this country. And I also argue around the globe. Mm -hmm. She broke it down. These are the misconceptions of BLM. I'm so glad you did. Now, I want to rewind a little bit. You grew up in San Fernando Valley in California, and you became an activist early in life. What what caused you to get involved at such a young age? You know, for people who are not familiar with Los Angeles, it's a big city. Mm -hmm. It's a very big city. And part of that big city is also a bunch of suburbs. And so I actually grew up in a working class suburb inside of the San Fernando Valley called Van Nuys. And I actually have four generations from Los Angeles. My great grandmother migrated here from Oklahoma because she was fleeing the KKK. Too scary, too dangerous for her. And so she moved to Los Angeles and She raised her son and then her son raised my mother and then my mother raised us. And the valley is is a suburb, but there are parts of the valley that are working class. Mm -hmm. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in a working class suburb and I witnessed a significant amount of over-policing. It was pretty much the central social service in my community. It was the police and it was incarceration. And almost all the young boys in my neighborhood in particular were heavily policed. Um, When I was in summer school at the age of 12, I was arrested for allegedly smoking weed in the girls' bathroom. I was smoking weed, but... But also it was alleged and... (laughs) Exactly. I was inside my summer school classroom. A 
cop came in the classroom, whispered in the teacher's ear, the teacher ordered me to stand up and the cop handcuffed me and walked me to the principal's office at 12. School is supposed to be a safe space. Literally a safe space. And, you know, if a child is smoking weed, maybe we should have a conversation about what's happening. Not get arrested. I mean, I don't think that cops go into white schools and just start arresting kids for no, you know, for allegations. They don't because I went to a white school and (laughs) all the children were smoking weed and there were no cops around. And so, you know, that experience of just witnessing so much policing at such a young age and just brutal policing, you know, like young people being brutalized by the police, this experience of harassment. Mm-hmm. It just felt hard and it hard for no reason and, and hard for no good reason. So that was like life growing up in Van Nuys. So this is where the activism came. Yeah. You know, that those early age experiences really shaped me into the activist that I am today. I think that starting Black Lives Matter and the other organizations that I've started really came from what I witnessed as a child and and the desperation for agency. Part of being a freedom fighter is having the agency to change the conditions that you grew up with. Mm. So many of us in this work inside of Black Lives Matter, we do it because of how we grew up. We do it because of what we experienced and we don't want our children experiencing it. We don't want their children experiencing it. I'm literally creating a place where Black people can live freely. Mm. That's my vision. And I believe that when Black people are free, we all are free. Wow. That was, it's just a heavy statement because it's it's a, it's remarkable that so many black people don't feel free and that there's even a movement that has to be made like like BLM. I mean, it's from a white perspective. It's like how? But, you know, to be shocked by this is to be ignorant. You're talking about these young experiences because, as you know, and, and you have a son and I have a son, too. But like these are the things that shape you. And when you were nine, you wrote a speech it was called If I Was President. Yeah. Now, do you remember that speech? I love that you all know that. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to come and sit down with Patrice Cullors and not have done my research. Yeah. Oh, that's so special. Yes. I wrote that speech because my second grade teacher, Miss Melcher, she was probably the first woman of color teacher I had. She was Filipina. And she, this was during the first Bush administration and the first Iraq war. And I was nine. So I kind of, you know, vaguely remember watching television and remember us having to go to war. And I just remember these visuals of soldiers walking through sand with their army fatigue and their boots on and just feeling like scared for the people in the country. Mm. What's going to happen to them? So our teacher asked us to write an essay about if we were president. And I wrote an essay about it. And I, I said, I would get all of the bombs and all of the guns and I would pack them away and I would bury them under the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and my great grandmother, who I was raised with, thank God, until I was 21, she, I think my mom, her and my mom were very, very close. I think my mom wanted me to read it for her. And so she called my great grandma and was like, read, you know, read the, the essay to your grandmother. And I read it. And then my grandmother had me do that same essay, but for her women's club 
and which she honored, you know, women every year. My grandmother was part of the NAACP and part of her women's club. And she was like the lead singer in her church. And so I went and it was my first public speech. And I, I shared that speech to like a room full of 300 women. I was so nervous. It must have been compelling. It must have been, I mean, not just that her granddaughter wrote this amazing speech, but that <laughs> she just wanted you to have that experience as well. I think so. And she was very perceptive. I think she knew like mm. this young girl is going to be something. Let me start sourcing her now. And she gave me a little trophy. It was a very sweet experience. That just is, again, shaping the activists in you. And you were also an avid dancer. I mean, you're still involved in artistic pursuits in a big way. How have you balanced your passion for activism and art? And how have you been able to bring them together over the years? Oh, I love when people ask me about art. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I grew up, once again, my great-grandmother planted the seed for me to, like, go to dance classes. And so when I was 11 years old, I was, I was in a performing arts school and I wanted to do more training. And so I found the yellow pages, opened them up, looked at dance schools in my neighborhood, and then pretty much called all of them and said, will you give me a scholarship? I want to go to dance classes. And there was one woman, Noreen Xavier, who said, yeah, just come come down and bring your parent. And I was like, Ooh, I hadn't asked my parents. So (laughs) now I need to. (laughs) And I actually asked my father to take me and he took me to the dance studio and I took dance classes as long as I like clean the studios and the bathrooms. And it was my first sort of experience of being able to do something on my own and really Mm -hmm. commit to it. And then, you know, a lot, transformed for me because I started to read Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde in high school and started to realize that the environment that I was in in the dance school was not an environment that was conducive to me as a young Black girl. Mm. There was a lot of stuff around body and, you know, making us weigh ourselves and just a lot of like repressive experiences that I was like, I don't think as a feminist, I, I believe in this. And so I knew I loved dance and I knew I loved art. And so I started to really investigate, well, what else can I do with this practice? And I started to find artists named Narcissister, who's a performance artist. And I was, and she used to dance with Alvin Ailey and she kind of left Alvin Ailey for similar reasons and started to do more like weird performance art. And I was like, oh, that's kind of what I want to be doing. And so I pursued, started pursuing, you know, performance art and really doing art that can combine movement, but wasn't sort of like wedded to the technique of that. Mm. And really was more in a fine art space, you know, kind of having conversation with the museum and the gallery and other performance artists. So that has been huge for me. It's been an, a really important conversation because I really feel like my art and my organizing are extensions of my political values. and. Mm. This year, I launched with two other friends of mine. We launched an art gallery and art studio in Inglewood. Oh. Where we are, yeah, it's called the Crenshaw Dairy Mart. And it's a former Dairy Mart that we have redeveloped into an art studio and art gallery. And we've been working with folks inside of the community. And we have a Nipsey Hustle mural up. And we have done so much work, even in a time of COVID and quarantine, to kind of really focus on 
artists of color inside of Inglewood and Los Angeles. That's remarkable. I mean, that just goes like you've literally got your hands in a lot of different (laughs) pots. All right, guys, I am loving this week's conversation and I hope you are too. So we'll get back to the interview in just a second. But first, I wanted to take a minute to shout out my Revlon fam. Okay, so this time around, I actually did my own makeup. I have to say it is a privilege to have my glam team. I love you guys. But honestly, I've been pretty impressed with my makeup skills lately. They've definitely gotten better during quarantine thanks to my Revlon fam and all their amazing products. So today what I did was for foundation, I went in with the ready, with the photo ready candid glow in shade number 270. My bronzer is the skin light sunlight glow bronzer, the shades 110. I kind of just like I went ham all over my face and then just did like some major contour. Um, And then there's this concealer, which is the Revlon Colorstay Full Coverage Concealer. I'm number 30, it's light medium. I don't even use an actual brush. I just kind of use my fingers. I just apply to my eyes, my nose, my chin, and just in between my brows. Basically like wherever there's a little bit of red, I cover. And then, you know, the little darkness under my eyes because hello, she's a new mother. And voila, honey, it is all there. My minimal sexy look. I mean, sexy because hey, she's always sexy, but These days, I have to say, I may not be getting out of the house, but when I do, my face is usually covered up with a mask. Wear your mask. Even when people can't see my face, I just feel more confident stepping out into the world when I've got my Revlon on. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And honestly, sometimes it's fun to just experiment with new looks at home. It always looks so fierce. Live boldly with Revlon. Okay. Now that you really have a mental picture of what I'm looking like right now, even if you can't see me, let's get back to the show. You have a docu-series called Resist and about the grassroots organization that you started called Justice LA. And everybody that's listening or watching, you guys have to go to YouTube and check this out. The episodes are like anywhere between like eight and 10 minutes long. They're bite sized. So like if you have a, you know, if you have ADD like me, you can handle it. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think it's really powerful how you gave the viewers just like a firsthand look into what goes into being an activist and really being on the front lines. And so what do you hope the viewers are taking away from your docuseries, Resist? It's a really good question. We really wanted people to understand that activism wasn't just going to protests. The news media is obsessed with the protests, you know, right. they want to focus on the sort of like most exciting part. But a lot of what we're doing is like having meetings, being in conversations, developing strategy, trying to figure out what's the best you know, next step forward, trying to figure out who's the elected official that's going to support us. So I really wanted people to see the background of what we do every single day. And then obviously, you know, during the series, in true, you know, awful fashion, the police killed somebody during the series. And so you see the story of Juan Correa. Mm. And we really, you know, had been already working with Helen Jones, whose son had been um, killed in Men's Central Jail. Her story, I I started bawling when she said her story. And then when she started crying, I fell down. I I was, it was a mess for me yesterday. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I met Helen in the middle of a protest when we were protesting the deaths inside the jails. Mm. Helen showed up with all of her son's documents 
with the supposed noose that he used to kill himself. And she has been on a mission before she even met BLM or Justice LA, Dignity and Power. And she is one of the fiercest advocates. You know, I let her know that YouTube picked up the series and her son's story was going to go wide. And she just thanked me and cried. And she was like, you know, all the work that we've done has just gave her purpose. Because obviously when you lose a child and, you know, you and I as mothers, like the, even the thought, like, I just can't, I can't even think, think about that. And so like meeting all these parents who have experienced this terrible loss and then for a long time didn't have support or community. And who have never had justice. Never. never ever have had justice. And now, you know, there's these movements that are, that they can be inside of to give them justice. I wanted people to see that. I wanted people to see what it takes and the kind of labor and how long it takes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to win something. And, and and I think it's what's important for the audience to know is since we shot the documentary, we actually have won. We stopped the building of the $3.5 billion. We won a year later. Because <laughs> it was two jails that were going to yeah. open. Yes. And one of them was a mental health jail. And then the other one was just like, you know, regular old run of the mill jail. And anybody who's listening, if you haven't seen the movie 13th, a lot of the activism around this, what you were doing as far as as this demonstration, actually, that you were doing really like explain. It's all explained in the movie 13th. It's a very educational film for people to watch if they don't understand. Why don't we want jails anymore? Sorry. I kind of like went off that way. But wow. So There's no prisons. They didn't open those two. That's great. That's awesome news. Exactly. And this is what I'm saying for people. Like, it's not a single protest that stops that. It's years and years. Mm. We have been fighting back those jails for 12 years. 12 years. Yes. I remember when it was first discussed on the agenda for the County Board of Supervisors. I was 25, 26 years old. And I remember that. First, you know, 300 of us went to the category of supervisors. We all, that was like, you know, we weren't really using social media. So it was mostly email, text messages, like, let's all go to the county, let them know we don't want to build jails. And they told us, as you saw in the series, that they're, they're doing it. Stop asking us. But we kept fighting. We kept fighting after that. And I said it in the series. I said, oh, we're not done. My producer and I were talking. We were like, the jails probably got built because there was like billions of dollars, you know, within <laughs> those jails. So I'm like, Matt, did you hear that? (laughs) I just need folks to understand because people don't realize that the organizing we're doing is actually changing the world. It is. It's changing the world. It really, truly is. I think that your book is really remarkable as well. You wrote a book in 2018. It's also New York Times bestseller. If you guys haven't gotten it yet, please go get it. It's called When They Call You a Terrorist, A Story of Black Lives Matter and the Power to Change the World. And you also did an adaptation for the young adult edition. How do you approach this conversation differently when speaking to a younger audience? Oh, such a good question. I mean, part of how you approach it, honestly, because we have to remember all of our young people are seeing everything. There's no longer a filter. My child, you know, I'm like very strict on screen time, but eventually he's going to be around other kids who are on social media Mm -hmm. are you know, using all the things and I can't really stop him. So instead of trying to filter what's happening, we have to actually 
figure out how to have the hard conversations with young people and how to have them in a way that feels generative. As you, you know, so beautifully, and thank you so much for shouting out the books, the young adult version of the book actually has a set of questions. Yes, it does. Chapter. And there's even like little, you've written little notes. Those notes are from my journals from when I was 16 years old. I mean, to, it's so to- nice. And I'm I'm glad that I have this book because I am raising, even though Isaac is biracial, I'm raising a little black son. And right. we have to have these conversations, whether, you know, whether we want to or not. Mm-hmm. Literally what you just said, like, we have to have the conversations. I think the conversations, you know... <laughs> My mom is like very intense. So she did have a lot of conversations with us, but they're a little traumatic because she didn't like <laughs> process with us. You're like, mom, we're not your therapist. <laughs> exactly. She was, it was like a little bit like, oh, wait, what does that mean? <laughs> so my mom's not really a feelings person. So, and I definitely was and am. So, you know, just like taking the time to be like, how does that feel? Like hearing that, knowing that, you know, my kid doesn't even like watch the screen that much. And he already has a very intense response to police. Mm. And that's just because he probably hears me talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. probably he hears his parents talking about it. And so I have had to start talking to him when he says things about the police. Well, why do you feel that way? You know, mm. what did, where did you hear that? Where did that conversation happen? And he's four, mm-hmm. he's four years old. And so we have to be ready and prepared, not just ready. Mm-hmm. We should be prepared to talk to our children. And I believe, you know, young white children, and this is, you know, for listeners who are in your own journey around undoing your whiteness and, you know, really dedicating to an anti-racist white identity. You also have to talk to your children mm-hmm. and talk about that they're different because of the color of their skin. You know, it's not just black people who should talk to our children and it's not just about black children. We all should be talking to our children about race and discrimination and and teaching them to challenge it and push back against it. You know, and I think that's very important. I think that's a great, great advice. And if you're a white parent that doesn't understand how to have these conversations, pick up a book. Watch a documentary. I mean, it's that easy. And I love that you're a mom, a nurturer, a protector. So what are some of the ways that you are educating your own child right now? And I'm I'm asking because, you know, I'm also walking into, even though Isaac's only 10 months old right now, I have to start really figuring this out. Well, I love this question because the first place that I started to really think about, like, how do I want to have these conversations with my kid was like, oh, children's books. Mm. And we're so lucky that we have access to people who are creating children's books on race, on gender, like mm-hmm. on issues around ability. You know, I'm working on a concept right now. Uh, I want to do a children's book on mental health because it's like, there's so many, you know, my brother has severe mental illness and he has a son that I, that I helped raise. Oh, and wow. Yeah. He has a, his, oh my God, my nephew's like 24 now. I'm like, what? He's a grown man? He's a grown man with a full-on beard that connects. <laughs> like, How is this possible? But he's lovely and he's like, I'm like, oh, I definitely helped raise you. Like, you, very yeah, you did a good job. You gave yourself a pat on the back. I really do. I really, <laughs> I really do. But, you know, having children's books about very serious issues are so important because it actually equips our babies with being able to process early on. Like Mm -hmm. my child can tell me when he's frustrated, 
when he's hurt, when he's happy, when he loves something, all the, the all that emotional intelligence, especially for young boys mm-hmm. is so critical for their development because they're honestly not going to get it in a lot of other places. So when it comes to hard issues like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, how do you talk about those things? When would you or have you already started talking about those? I haven't. I haven't yet. I think that every parent has to decide what makes sense for them. And like, you know, some of our members, if you were a person whose sibling you know, got killed by the police. If you're a child of someone that's killed by the police, then those conversations happen much earlier on. Mm-hmm. And so I think we really all should be prepared to talk about death and what happens with death and, and why it happens. But, you know, I've never taken my kid to a protest and that's because of who I am. It's not, it's not safe for them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these conversations are probably going to happen later in his life. And he's probably going to be like, what in the hell? Like, Right. You were doing what? Who am I? <laughs> but but for others, you know, and and I have a lot of folks in our in our movement who's been bringing their kids to protest, and so I think those conversations happen, you know, differently. We're showing up because we have to honor the people who've passed, and mm-hmm. you know, I think we could say it in a way that feels not daunting or so scary right. for children because children are, you know, they're just like big balls of feelings. They are, and they uh, soak up everything everything. So it's important that we take our time and the conversations, but we don't try to avoid the conversations. It's a kind of a, an awakening moment for folks. It is. Their folks are being sort of like, you know, it's jarring and it's uncomfortable, but I think it's so important to just like, kind of like rest of the, in the discomfort and just be like, okay, this is hard. This is hard stuff. It I'm is. not sure what to do with it. But it's a question that comes up often. Why do you think this is happening? Like, I'm very shocked, you know, by how we got here. My answer is that every generation has some sort of a a reckoning with race and racism. Mm -hmm. And the goal is that we will actually deal with it this time. Because in the 60s and 70s, they really thought like, this is it. We're going to, this is going to be dealt with. Like, we, there's so many people on the streets. There's so, there's a huge movement. We are going to finally deal with it. There was, you know, we were seeing folks get into office and, but the part that we keep forgetting is that there's a whole crew of people. And now we know 73 million who are actually really invested in racism mm. and really invested in discrimination. Mm-hmm. And that's hard pill to swallow. Like, what do you do when almost half the country is willing to spend four years under white supremacy. That's that's a much more difficult thing to grasp, which means that we've done a lot of work, but we have a ton of work that we have to do and keep doing. It was shocking to see how divided this country was. I mean, it was and it wasn't. I mean, I think that right. from maybe from a perspective like yours, it wasn't. But then again, maybe it, maybe it was to see. It was, both. it was both. I was like, no surprise and also shocking. <laughs> like, you guys, because to me, it's like, not, it wasn't just about race and racism. I'm like, what about COVID? Right. You know, what about people? <laughs> what, what about, about the pandemic? Exactly. Like, what about women? Literally every single marginalized group. So 73 million people don't care about everybody else. Mm-hmm. That to me was like, oh, this is deeper. This is deeper. And I think we're all trying to figure out what that deeper actually is. 
You guys, we will get back to the show in just a second, but first I need to share a cautionary tale with you. The other day I left my house and I started to panic. As soon as I felt that cold December air stinging my skin, I knew that I had messed up. I didn't forget my phone, my purse, my keys, my mask, or my kid. It was kinda worse. I forgot to moisturize. Dun, 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 dun. So I told myself, listen, Ashley, you've got this. Just breathe. The first thing is I have an emergency kit for exactly this situation. It's made by my favorite brand, Flamingo, and it's called the Body Moisturizing Trio. It's these three products, not just products, but skincare essentials that I always keep within reach. There's the Light Hydrating Spray, which is my favorite, because honestly, who doesn't wanna just spray lotion on? And there's also the Daily Moisturizing Lotion, the Deep Nourishing Cream, and I have to tell you, this trio gives you three levels of hydration for up to 24 hours, and it's just $25. Yes, $25, and you can have all three. So all these products are dermatologist tested, made from plants, dye-free, paraben-free, and cruelty-free. Say what? And that's when I ask you, what are you waiting for? It's almost the holidays, so go get yourself some Flamingo Body Moisturizing Trio for everyone in your life. You can find it on shopflamingo.com. There's been so many, just in 2020 alone, so many streets and public spaces across the country that were renamed Black Lives Matter. In (laughs) fact, one of them was on Fifth Avenue in front of the Trump Tower. I'm curious, how are you feeling about that? (laughs) What does this mean to have such a prominent public space dedicated to Black Lives Matter? It's as both an organizer, but also as an artist and a creative, it was really powerful to start seeing this kind of cultural marker mm-hmm. be put on our streets. And it really felt and feels like a deep act of love and solidarity. Like it's powerful. It's powerful. And I think Black Lives Matter is so important because it actually shaped culture. It's shaping culture. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we're doing in the halls of power. You know, it's not just about like creating new policy, although we we deeply believe in that. You know, we are a big, you know, we're pushing for the Breathe Act, which we see as our modern day civil rights legislation. Which I'm very excited about that. That's a beautiful act. And I like that you said that it's a love letter to Black people. Yes, it truly, truly is. And I think, you know, these moments, though, these cultural moments that, you know, folks across the world were texting me and be like, Black Lives Matter on the plaza, like in front of the White House. That was, you know, exactly. That was a conversation. That was a conversation like, okay, you could say all the things you want to say in that White House, but out here, Black Lives Matter. And I think that that's important. It is. I just got chills. I mean, it's it's not just the AC. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's awesome. So I, I want you to break something down because I think there's a maybe misconception or misunderstanding about you identifying yourself and your co-founders as trained Marxists. Yes. And the Republicans have even used your comment in ads. So break it down. What does it mean to be a trained Marxist? I am actually going to be doing my first explainer video for my YouTube channel. So, you know, everybody's going to watch Resist and then that that channel is my YouTube channel. Fabulous. I'm going to be talking specifically about this. Okay, So I'll Great. give you like a snippet of what I'm going to be sharing, which is first, people just need to understand what Marxism actually is because 
They don't. Tell us, please. I mean, I've looked up the word four times now <laughs> and I'm still, I'm just like, okay. So Marxism actually comes from a philosopher. His name was Karl Marx. And Karl Marx was actually having a conversation, a critical one around capitalism. He was like, there are people who are workers and people who are bosses and these workers are being exploited. They're not getting their needs met. They're not being valued. And so Karl Marx starts to have a conversation about the issues with capitalism, okay? And through that, through that conversation, the philosophy start, becomes Marxism, okay? So it's really a conversation about, a critical conversation around capitalism. And I think it's important that we're critical about everything, including the term Marxism. But Marxism, what, what people are very scared about and, and what people have, you know, I've read all the comments. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. The GOP has used the Marxism comment to then say that I'm a communist and that the Black Lives Matter organization is a communist and that communism itself tears down the country. So this is up for debate. I'm actually not I'm not really interested in the debate of like, will communism tear, tear up the country or not? What, I, what I'm most interested in saying is that I don't actually identify as a communist. <laughs> Got it. I don't identify as that. Yes, I've I've been trained in Marxism, but I've also been trained in a lot of different philosophies. My entire undergrad is in, I'm a theologian. I was trained in religion and all the Abrahamic traditions. I study the Bible. I have a, like a big old Bible on my bookshelf because I studied it. And apologetics. A, yes, exactly. So I've been trained in Marxism. I've been trained in theology. I've been trained in, as a sociologist. So basically the breakdown is you're just really smart. You're very <laughs> curious. And I mean, I think that it, I, I'm glad that you broke this down because I think that it kind of, I mean, maybe it brings a relief to someone who's listening and didn't understand what you were saying. Yeah. I also will say that there's also comments about socialism in this idea that, okay, these socialists, you know, people call Rep AOC all the time. I and mean, she identifies as a democratic socialist. But what people don't under understand is that inside of our system, the U.S. is actually a mixed economy. It uses capitalism and forms of socialism. Follow me here a little bit. Yep. Our tax system is a socialist system. We all pay in taxes so that supposedly people can get social services. Supposedly. The, most, the, so the social service we pay for the most are police and military. So our tax dollars are, it's a socialized system. It means you pull a bunch of people's money together. Mm -hmm. And then when that money is pulled together, then you disperse it amongst social services. So people have access to those social services. So we actually have both a capitalist system and a socialist system. And honestly, neither of them are working very well. If we still have poor people, if we still have homeless people, if we still have people who are sick and can't get health care, if we still have people going through mental health crisis and they can't get anything done for their mental health, then the system we have right now is not working. What system will work? We don't know yet because we haven't been able to get it done yet. So that is important to me. And I know it is because you have a quote that says, imagine a world where we didn't keep a community in bondage. And as you strive to transform the criminal justice system and abolish prisons, how do you get this across as a not police hating organization? Well, I think what's important for people to understand is that we are actually not talking about individual police officers. Right. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the institution of policing mm -hmm. and the history in which that comes from. 
which we've talked about a ton. And, and the history of policing, actually, its roots come from slave patrols. I know. My husband broke this down to me, actually. I was shocked. There was no police. What the? And tell me if I'm wrong. So let me just see if I'm getting this right. Yeah. Police were created to capture the slaves that, that ran away from their slave owners. Yes. So basically, essentially, police were created to capture Black people. Yes. Period. Yes. Period. Many of those police forces as the police became more professionalized, those police forces, they once once slavery ended, as you know, going back to your note around people watch 13, slavery ended except for people who were in servitude and mm-hmm. bondage. And so once slavery ended, the use of those police forces, we needed to use them. And then laws were created to criminalize black people. Black codes were the first set of laws after the emancipation of slavery really telling black people you can't loiter you can't if you don't have a job well we how are we going to have a job we were just enslaved for these years like they set you up to fail that's exactly right and then the police were used as the catch-all to deal with black people and so this is the history this is the history about hating police it's not that actually is the wrong question it's about transforming an institution that its roots and is in violent racism. And that's what brings us to defunding the police. And can you break that down? Because I I saw um, you just put on your IG live, you were talking to um, someone. Thank you. And you said, it's just simply that we know what the word defund means and we know what the word police means. (laughs) So it's just about taking and reworking where this money is going. How are we going to do that? We're going to do it through the Breathe Act we are going to reallocate dollars. Okay. So people are scared of the word defund, but only when it comes to the police. I said this on Michelle Martin, we've defunded, the right has defunded pretty much everything. They've defunded education. They've defunded our ability to have access to healthcare. They've defunded our ability to have access to jobs. They've defunded the housing market. So that is that actually the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is that people don't want to have a real conversation around what the police do, and more importantly, how we can transform our system so everybody is cared for. How we're gonna do that? Through the BREATHE Act. And the BREATHE Act, we created it through the Movement for Black Lives. The Movement for Black Lives is a coalition of 150 Black-led organizations inside of this country. And we said, you know, we need a policy. We need like a robust policy that's going to actually reallocate dollars back into black communities. And so that's what the Breathe Act does. We're excited about working with the Biden-Harris camp to have these conversations about the Breathe Act. Senator Kamala Harris already knows about the Breathe Act. Oh, that's great. She was one of the first people we met with about the Breathe Act. So I have a lot of faith that this will be something we're able to pass. I think it'll take time, like everything that we, you know, every policy you try to move forward, that takes time. But I have a lot of faith in this next team to make it happen. And I know you just put a request in with Biden-Harris transition team. First of all, any updates there? Have not heard back yet, but I did hear from someone on the transition team that she's trying to work work it out and figure it out. Oh, that's great news. That's great mm-hmm. news. So when you get the meeting, what's on the top of your agenda? The BREATHE Act. We want to talk specifically about the BREATHE Act. We want to talk about, you know, the necessity to really talk to Black folks and Black voters in particular Mm -hmm. about what our needs are. You know, I really do think they should go on a listening tour across Mm -hmm. the country and listen to 
where black people are at and and what we're we're needing and why we why we voted for them. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think they should spend, you know, the first 100 days very much creating a black agenda because we deserve it. We do. I I said we. You all do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, a black agenda is an agenda for all. So that's yes. right. <laughs> my son and my husband. Yes. <laughs> and also, I mean, February 2nd is the Patrice Colors Day. Can you believe that the city of Los Angeles, state of California, gave you a day? I really can't. It's really strange. How do you plan on celebrating in 2021? Um, I don't know. I haven't even thought about it. I'm like, well, I'll still be in quarantine. I know we'll pro- we probably will. We will. But there has to be some you have to do something. I just think that's, I will. I'll do that's something. phenomenal. You have your own day. I wish I had my, my own day is my birthday. It's like everybody else. I wonder if that's going to show up in my Google calendar, like Patrice Colors Day. You know, just to kind of really think about you, Patrice, you know, you do so much. Um, you're in a line of work that's so brave and bold, and you have to take on so many different energies within the world, along with so many different traumas. How do you unwind? How do you heal and find time for yourself and for your family? A few ways. Number one, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm going to actually talk to my therapist tonight. I love my therapist. Oh my goodness. I love my therapist <laughs> so much. I'm so grateful for her. I know. Same. You know, my therapist just texted me like, I'm just checking on you. How are you? And just that was enough. You know what I mean? And that's like, yeah, I have, I've been working with her for two years and I've, I'm a, I've been a big fan of therapy for 20 years. Now, is your therapist a black woman? She's not. She's a white woman. Yes. But I have black, I've had black woman therapists. And how is it talking to a white woman? She's so damn good. It don't matter. Wow. And also she's not just any white woman. She's anti-racist white woman. She's been on a a path of, I don't, I actually don't think I could work with a white woman who didn't have an anti-racist politic. Mm -hmm. So that actually matters. I want to make sure I big up the anti-racist white folks who are, who are therapists, who are working with folks of color. So I was very skeptical. I was like, oh, God damn, like, really? But on my first session, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to keep you because you are getting me all the way together. So therapy, big, therapy. big fan. And we can joke together now. And, and it's, you know, it's like very, it doesn't feel like heavy every time. Right. Hanging out with my kid. He's hilarious. I can't wait till your baby starts to talk. They're just hilarious. Like, <laughs> they say the funniest things. And so I'm so excited. Like, just he just makes jokes all the time he's like a very like very humorous child being in community is big for me you know we're in COVID time so a lot of it is like zoom calls or you know being on text threads with my friends or you know all of us getting tested and then social distancing and and so that is really important for me i'm not someone who like likes to be alone a lot it's Mm. just i know people who are like that and that's not me i grew up in a big family and and then, you know, doing some form of movement. I, I work with a black woman yoga instructor and she's amazing. And after I had the baby, it just, my body, it was just, it was just hard. I was like, nothing has gone back. Exactly. <laughs> it's just so hard. I'm like surprised my uterus went back. I was like, are you sure? I've never seen my thighs this jiggly in my life. I just, I'm like, I got cellulite on my knees, on my knees everything changes literally and 
And that was like, you know, it was a, a very, very serious adjustment for me. And like, honestly, folks like you and so many other like plus size folks who are just embracing, like, I love when you're just like, I'm here, y'all. This is what you, this is what, That's this it. is what I got. This is what you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just been, been really transformative and healing for me. And so being able to do yoga with her, I do it twice a week. And she's just like, you know, I'll be like texting her friend, like, okay, I'm on my way. I'm sorry. I've been on the Zoom. Like, and she's just like, she's like sitting just like peaceful. And she's like, let's just sit together. Take a moment. And That's I'm like, amazing. You need those moments. You, yes. you have so much around you. I'm, I'm glad that you've created those spaces for yourself. Mm-hmm. And just before you go, um, first of all, thank you for this hour conversation because it's been beautiful and enlightening. But I was talking with your co-founder, Opal. And she's so beautiful. And she mentioned to me that ally is a verb. Mm -hmm. And for people out there that are wondering what they can do, can you suggest some actionable ways to be an ally? Absolutely. I always say this to every single person I talk to. Number one, join something. Mm -hmm. Do not do this alone. Join an organization, join a book club, join a collective, whatever you feel most passionate about. It may not be police violence or mass incarceration, maybe economic justice, it may be climate, it may be feminism and women's rights. Whatever it is, do it. Mm. Join it. Find the organization that's doing the work you feel most excited about, because I promise you, you're just going to feel better when you have people, other people who are also doing it. Everything that's happening in Georgia, trust me, join a phone, phone banking team. We, they need all hands on deck to make sure mm-hmm. that we get our folks elected inside of Georgia. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's like immediate. And then take your time. Um, this is hard work. Be easy on yourself. I really discourage the use of council culture on each other. It's not helpful. It doesn't work. It doesn't get us closer to what we want, which is freedom for everybody. Justice I'm glad you for said everybody. that. I'm, I'm not excited about like the bullying on the internet and the canceling of each other. Like I get the use of council culture for elected officials who've done terrible things. Mm-hmm. I get the use of, you know, you know, when you've tried to do everything, when you've tried to send an email, a petition and these, and these electeds are not listening. But when we start to use cancel culture on our friends and our communities, that's really dangerous territory. And so be easy on yourself and be easier on, on each other. We are dealing with the global pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with Black folks who've been in an uprising for hundreds of years, and we've seen the height of it this year. People are high stress right now. And so do as much as you can to get relief. Do as much as you can to heal yourself and be ready to be in partnership with healing each other. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Patrice? So grateful that you came on to Pretty Big Deal. Thank you so, so, so much. I can't wait to squeeze you in person. I know, one day. It will be one day. And we'll do a play date and we'll do the whole thing. But Shiloh's babies. He'll be like, you're so cute. And Isaac will be like, I'm not a baby. (laughs) I can already see him saying that. He can't even speak yet, but I can already see him being like the tough guy. Well, again, thank you so much. And um, we appreciate all your activism. And I look forward to actually meeting you in person. Thank you. I am so glad that I had the opportunity to talk to Patrice this week. I love learning more about the totality of who she is. 
and also understanding her as a person and her work and her views. Patrice, keep fighting the fight and know that you have a whole bunch of allies who have got your back. Thank you guys for watching and listening to Pretty Big Deal. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Pretty Big Deal Pod, and on Twitter at Pretty Big Pod. Don't forget to share your Pretty Big Deal moments with me on social media with the hashtag Pretty Big Deal.